Thank you. Good morning. It's nice to be here again. I like your the story liturgy. That's new since I was here. It's very good. So um, <clears throat> you've been looking at this series on the resurrection, and my job today is to finish it off with looking at the resurrection and the earth. I'm, I'm used to being the go-to person around Luton for the environment, <laughs> and that's absolutely fine by me. Um, <clears throat> so today I want to look at this issue through two different questions. What does the earth tell us about resurrection? And then I want to flip it round and ask, what does the resurrection tell us about the earth? So we'll start with, what does the earth tell us about resurrection? And to do that, I want to tell you three stories. I invite you, first of all, to look around this room and identify things that are metal. There's all kinds of stuff that's metal around here, um, including spoons. Now, we all know where metal comes from. Um, it comes from the ground, where we mine it and refine it and then shape it into the things that we need. But how did it get into the ground? And where did it come from originally? Because there's, um, the whole universe is made up of these different elements, and they're all set out in the periodic table. And some of those elements we can manipulate through industry and through chemistry. We can turn them into new things. But there are other elements that we can only find in the wild. They can't be created. And one of those is gold. So for hundreds of years, there were alchemists whose whole mission in life was to try and take ordinary metals like lead and stuff and turn it into gold so they could become fabulously wealthy. And obviously, they never succeeded. And modern science has told us why you can't create gold. Because there's only one force in nature which is powerful enough to create gold, which is this heavy and complex element. And that force is a supernova. So when a, when a star explodes, you have this enormous release of energy and heat, and it fuses together all these simpler elements to create these complex elements like gold. <clears throat> so all the metals that we've just looked at in this room are similar. All of them had their origins in a supernova, in an exploding star. Um, <clears throat> now, we're made of all the same elements as everything else in the universe, and there are ingredients in the human body which also originated in exploding stars. So what's this got to do with anything uh, in our topic? So a supernova is a dying star. But the death of a star creates all these new materials for new, new stars and new planets, and in our case, for life itself and for Luton and City Life Church. So the death of a star creates materials for new life. So that's um, story number one. Story number two. So our own planet forms out of this cloud of dust and materials that have been kind of thrown out into space by a dying star, and it begins to form and cool. And um, as, the, as life first begins to emerge on this planet Earth, it looks very different to the way it looks now. The whole atmosphere of the Earth was covered in methane. And if you or I were to go back in time and visit early life on Earth, we would basically just die <laughs> immediately. Um, the first life that formed was a, a bacteria that lived in the sea. It was a blue-green algae. 
algae or algae, whichever you prefer. Algae? We have a vote for algae. Good. <coughs> so we can imagine that it looked something like that. Um, now this algae, it, it breathed in um, the methane and it breathed out oxygen. So it basically it, it, it breathed methane and it farted oxygen, which is the opposite of what we do. Um, <coughs> and as they uh, sort of filled the sea, they began to create so much oxygen in the atmosphere that new forms of life began to emerge that breathed oxygen. And so um, it created this new thing on Earth that hadn't been seen before. Now, this was great for the new forms of life that breathed oxygen, but it was actually poisonous for the algae. And they all died off. And life was taken forward by this new kind of life that breathed oxygen and that bre um, the breathed out carbon dioxide. So all the life that we see nowadays, including ourselves and all the plants and so on, is basically life 2.0. There was this previous kind of life that was methane-based that all died off, but even as they died off, they created the conditions for life as we know it today. And again, we see how death creates the conditions for life. Story number three. We know the kind of complex life that then went on to emerge. And for millions of years, the dominant form of life on Earth was dinosaurs. And uh, they were obviously reptilian. They laid eggs. Very, very different from the kind of life that we have today. And uh, they were the big boys. And mammals did emerge at this time, but there was really nothing much bigger than a rabbit. The only kind of mammals we had were things that could hide in a hole when the dinosaurs came along. <coughs> but we know what happened to dinosaurs, whether it was an asteroid or something else. <laughs> what we do know is that they all disappeared. <coughs> and as they disappeared, what was left was all these little mammals that came up out of their holes and found themselves the dominant form of life on planet Earth. And so they evolved into something much more complex and interesting, including ourselves. If the dinosaurs had stuck around, we wouldn't have had a chance. But the death of the dinosaurs created the conditions for mammals to flourish. So that's three examples of stars creating elements, and the algae creating oxygen, and the dinosaurs dying and making way for mammal life. There's three examples of a huge and significant death that can crack open something new and create new conditions for life. And in each of those cases, the life that comes afterwards doesn't look anything like what came before. So you couldn't look at this algae and imagine the complexity of the Amazon rainforest. But it's completely different. And so there are kind of three principles that we can draw out of those three stories. First, that in nature, death is never wasted. And secondly, that in nature, death creates conditions for new life. And third, that the new life that emerges looks completely different to what came before. Now, these are three stories of death on an epic scale. And to be honest, I could have explained the same three principles from a compost heap. Because they're all the same things. Or from the leaves that fall off the trees in the autumn and how they're absorbed back into the soil. <coughs> but the reason I wanted to look at these epic stories is that I think that Jesus' death and resurrection 
is another death on an epic scale. And all these stories took millions of years to resolve and finally make sense to us. And I think that we are only at the beginning of what Jesus' death and resurrection will ultimately mean. But I see no reason why the story of Jesus' death and resurrection shouldn't follow the same pattern that we see there in nature. That Jesus' death is not wasted, that his death creates conditions for new life, and that what comes afterwards will look nothing like what came before. So why is Jesus' death so epic? Well, if you believe that Jesus is God, then something pretty remarkable happens when Jesus is born into our, in, on, onto our planet. Because God has become part of our material reality and part of nature and part of this story of change. Part of the same atoms and elements that we're all made up of. In John 1, we see the word which was with God and which was God and through which all things were made, <coughs> the word became flesh and made its home among us. So in Jesus, the divine gets seeded into nature. God is planted into the material world and creation and creator kind of meld and fuse and become something potentially more complex and more interesting. And that means that God is in everything and you can't take anything and really tease apart what's God and what's not God. God is falling in the rain and coming up through the cracks in the pavement and God is running through our veins. Now let me land this in the, in the Bible for us a little bit. The, the arrival of Jesus marks the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament and they both talk about God in different ways as you'll be aware. And one of the things that characterizes the Old Testament is that God is beyond us and far away. Uh, it's just a recurring theme. Um, it's not God in the heights of heaven, we read in Job. And it, we read about God most high and uh, exalted, lofty, inaccessible God who is infinitely far above us. And only those who are invited to come to God can do so. And they have to do it through um, a sacrificial death of some kind. They have to do it in a special place. There's all these rituals that come with it. Um, you get these stories of God being on mountaintops or being hidden in the cloud. Um, you get stories like Moses, where Moses needs to receive a message from God, so he climbs the mountain on his own, and then he brings the message from God down to the people who are all waiting at the foot of the mountain. And you compare a story like that with Jesus. Because in Jesus, the high and almighty God comes down. And when Jesus climbs a mountain, like in the Sermon on the Mount, all the people come with him. And they're all there together at the top of the mountain. And then you get stories like um, when Jesus dies. And you might have looked at this already in your series when you've looked at the gospel accounts. So um, in Jerusalem, they had the temple. And in the middle of the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, which is where God was, was seen to, to, to be. It's where God lived. And the high priest was the only person who could go in. And even then, once a year... And then when Jesus dies, the temple to that Holy of Holies, that curtain um, of the way into that Holy of Holies is ripped from top to bottom. It's as if God is coming out from that place. God is now everywhere. And then after the resurrection, we get the Spirit. And then at that point, God is well and truly out there in nature. And we've gone from God being above us and far away to God being within us, to living in our hearts. And kind of permeating everything. 
And Paul talks about this in Colossians where he says that uh, God was before all things and in whom all things hold together. And then in um, Ephesians, he talks about God who is over all, but also through all and in all. God was always with creation, but I'm not sure if God was in creation in quite the same way that he is today since Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. In Jesus, God becomes planted in creation like a seed. And that's how Jesus described his mission as well in some places. In John 12, where he says, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, we don't know what those seeds eventually grow into. I think we're fairly early on in that process in some ways, despite being 2,000 years on from it. Um, but we get tiny glimpses, and we get glimpses in the world around us, and I think also in the Bible, in Revelation, for example, where we see... Um, I heard a shout from heaven, says John, um, saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So what does this mean for how we live today? Well, I think it's time to flip the question around and ask what the resurrection can teach us about the earth. And first of all, I think enough talk already about God being above us. <laughs> That's an Old Testament idea, and we've kind of moved on from that. If you think of how many uh, children's songs we sing in church, and we have to do the actions, and we say, a sign for God, God, and <laughs> up go the hands. We need to stop doing that. That's a, that's a mission for you all over the summer, to think of a new sign for God. Um, if you think of the design of a, of a classic traditional church, you have this big steeple pointing upwards towards heaven. In her book, Grounded, Diana Butler-Bass talks about how that traditional model of pointing upwards to God, that steeples look like rocket ships, and that, um, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> that the, the, the theology of many of those traditional churches totally matches the design, that um, the church is like a rocket ship, and if you keep going to church and you believe, then eventually we'll all just blast off to heaven one day. It's not really like that. Um, <clears throat> God comes down. This is a great line actually from Diana Butler Bass that she says, um, religion abandoned a prophetic and creative vision for humanity's common life in favor of an individual quest to get one's sorry ass to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but in Revelation, we see the city of God coming down and God saying, see, I am making all things new. It's all about God coming down. And that means that we need to value the earth as the place where God is. It's not a place that we can burn up with climate change and fill with rubbish and then escape and fly off to an otherworldly spiritual heaven. It's the place where we belong. It's our home spiritually as well as physically. And if we're serious about God being here with us, then we probably ought to tidy up a bit. Uh, there's a theologian called Norman Wurzba who says, the work to which God calls us is economic, political, and legal since it involves the preparation of a planetary home to which we hope to make God welcome. Do we really want God to live with us in a poisoned and degraded world? We need to rethink salvation as the art of permanent and life-giving homemaking. I think that's an interesting idea. Salvation as the art of permanent and life-giving homemaking. 
Now, I don't know if anyone remembers, what was it, 18 months ago, two years ago, um, <coughs> when Will and Kate visited this building. And I don't know if you remember all the effort that the council made <laughs> to get the streets out here ready. And they pulled up all the weeds and they painted things. They actually repaved the streets all around this building so that Will and Kate um, saw Luton at its absolute best. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it reminded me at the time of um, the bit in Isaiah where it says, uh, make a way for the Lord and make a straight path through the wilderness. <laughs> and um, that's quite a funny example, really, but it, that is basically what we're about. Since Jesus and since he begins this kingdom of God and this, this, this renewal and this coming together of mat the material reality of our earth and the spiritual dimension where God is, as the two are blended together, our job is to get started and to participate with God in the renewal of all things. And that will be about how we treat each other. It will be about politics and economics, about how we do business, and it will be about what we do with the earth. That renewal of all things has all sorts of different dimensions to it. So let me sum up. What the earth teaches us about the resurrection is that Jesus' death is not wasted, that it creates the conditions for new life, and that what comes next is beyond anything we can hope for or imagine. What the resurrection teaches us about the earth is that it is our long-term home, and God's home here among us. And we should live on it as if we plan to stay. So the next time you see the stars, think about how epic scale death creates possibilities for new life. And the next time you see a steeple, invert it in your mind and remember the God who comes down. The next time you're doing your recycling, think about the resurrection. Recycling is a prophetic act. And the next time you're gardening, think about the restoration of the earth, because gardening is worship. Now, I've left time for questions, so should we talk about this and about what it might mean? Yeah? Any questions to kick us off? Yeah. So the principle of like re death and rebirth is very intriguing and poetic and beautiful, and I really value what you say. But I also have a very hard time sometimes squaring, like, you know, the, is it like 99.99% of all living species have like become extinct to get here now? And it seems like that's also quite, I suppose, like following on from other discussions we've had about the resurrection as well, sometimes it feels like that's quite difficult to square and that Jesus' death can feel quite anthropocentric, you know. Um, no, that's, that's a good thought, and um, <clears throat> I've, I've looked quite long and hard for people who've talked about this seriously, and there's really not very many. Um, one way that I've sort of tried to understand it is that you have these processes of evolution that move forwards through death and decay and through sort of conflict and competition. There are also processes of evolution that move forwards through cooperation and altruism. Um, 
And if you, uh, interesting, this is the total aside. If you look at the science of evolution described in the Soviet Union, which came through a, a communist form of thinking, they totally saw evolution as a process of cooperation. And if you look at the history of evolution seen through English-speaking writers, it's all about competition and basically a free market for species. So you have these two forces at work, and they've been there all the way along. And what I think is going on, maybe, is that there is evolution through conflict and there is evolution through love, and one of those processes will win. I don't know. <laughs> Any other questions? There's, there's, there's big stuff, these, these, uh, these topics. Do you have any feel of the approximate proportion of Christians who still think they're going to jet off to heaven and those that are actually thinking about the new earth as well? That's, that's really hard to know because it's so embedded in our language. And so it's a bit like this idea that uh, we all know that worship is more than singing and yet every time you go to church you're going to sing. And someone's going to say, let's worship. And, and so we kind of constantly reinforce an idea that we, we all know is isn't quite right, but we keep saying it anyway. Um, <clears throat> and it's exactly the same with the earth. I think a lot of people, especially in the last 10, 15 years, where um, theologians like N.T. Wright have really kind of embedded this idea that actually, no, um, we're talking about a, a, a new creation and heaven coming down. I think a lot of people kind of know that, but we're still going to sing the children's songs and point upwards when we talk about God, and we're still going to direct our prayers upwards and all these kind of things. So it's about the language seeping through. Um, I think there are, there are still issues around um, fears that talking too much about the earth and seeing God in nature, certainly in some denominations and for older generations, that's seen as just a little bit new age, and so we're a little bit nervous about it. Um, and so we'd, we'd rather not talk about that. But I think it's changing. I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, though. <laughs> yeah. I still want to get it clearer. Uh, you say we should take care of the elves as God will come, you know, and we both reign together. So I don't I still understand if when Jesus comes, if this is where we're going to settle, or we still have somewhere up there. I don't get it. Well, I think that Revelation talks about the, the New Jerusalem and the city of God coming down from heaven. And this, this passage that we mentioned in Revelation 21, where it says um, God's home is now among his people. And so I think that there is this process going on that begins with Jesus' resurrection, where the place where God is and the place where we are are slowly coming together. And they're coming together through the church and through these processes of renewal and the transformation of the earth and of society. I think there will come a time when Jesus comes back when that invisible process becomes visible. Perhaps that's one way of thinking about it. Um, a, a time when like it, the momentum is such that it it becomes something different and everyone is participating in it and it's it's become something new again. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think even Revelation, it, everything is so poetic. There's a passage in the Bible where it talks about seeing through a glass darkly, and it's like we, we see these little glimpses of it. Um, 
and it's very difficult to work out what exactly it means. But I do think that because all the imagery in Revelation is about heaven coming down, that I don't think that we go away to another place. I think God is transforming and renewing his creation and making it perfect. And then as it approaches perfection, he is going to come and live here with us. Over here and then over here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just have um, sort of logistical problems um, in that I, I, I love... <laughs> yeah, if someone could give me a lift. No. Um, the, I, I sort of... I sort of want to jump straight into the idea that God is coming and he's going to renew all things and that we should look after the earth. And I, I, I think we should do all of those things. Um, but I have... So, I, and I like the idea that I want to treat this earth well for my lifetime, for the next generations to come, that we, we don't want it just to be, you know, you, you've seen the apocalyptic films, you don't want it to be like that. So we do want it to get better and better. But the, the sort of, the thing that I struggle with is this question, you know, having been raised with a Christianity that says we're going to get in the rocket ship and go up to heaven. Um, what happens to all those people that have already gone? We've already got a population problem on this planet. If they all come back, we're all going to be like, you know, so, and, and, but I, at the same time, I sort of cling to the methane oxygen transition that, like, it's not going to be the same as this with just more people on the, on the earth and all the, you know, all the dead people that we miss and so on. It's, it's not just going to be like, like it is, but a bit better and loads of people. It's going to be completely different. But yeah, it's, it's, this isn't a question I don't think anyone in this room can answer. But, it's just this sort of my head is exploding at the idea that we stay on this planet forever with all of the others. Uh, well, the good news is is, is that um, I've seen your series and you solved this all a couple of weeks ago with your session on heaven and hell and what happens after we die, so I don't need to answer it now. Um, <laughs> you can get the podcast, it's fine. Um, I don't know. I don't know, predictably. Um yeah, I, I, it is a question. Is if if there is a, a bodily resurrection on this earth, then here we have a lot of people to accommodate. We also know that um, Jesus says things like, "In my Father's house there are many rooms," um, but he doesn't elaborate on that, and so we have to kind of trust that there's some kind of process in mind. Um, I think heaven's quite good at logistics. Uh, we'll just we'll just trust that that is so. Um, maybe maybe. Um, just as the Garden of Eden is an invitation to go and expand and fill the earth, maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's an invitation to fill the universe. Um, Elon Musk thinks it is. Well, not in theological terms, but he thinks that humanity will be a cosmic interplanetary entity, the first, the first such thing. Maybe. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? To see space travelers worship as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's a there's a guy on YouTube uh, that I've been watching recently. Um, he said that what ten things that are going to happen in heaven uh, happens going to happen in heaven for us. Uh, we're going to get new bodies, not going to be like us. We're going to keep our characters. Uh, char characters. Um, we're going to live in heaven for a thousand years. God is going to create a new Jerusalem for all of us to live peace and harmony. 
uh, no more wars, no more fighting, no more death, um, just basically peace and harmony, no more everything else. Also, we're going to sit with, I don't know if this is going to be true or not, where we're going to have, um, going to travel different universes to see people and spread the word of God to the other planets that God has created for us, or created for, their, for themselves. Um, so I believe that we are going to travel around different universes and just to say to you know, spread God's word and be priests and be pre uh, preachers for God. And we're going to live on New Jerusalem on the earth, on this earth or a new earth. So hopefully we'll find out when we go to heaven. I don't know what's going to happen, but I've got a theory about that. The earth is not going to be populated. Um, it's going to be well, r much room. There's not going to be much. It's going to be loads of room for us to live on this earth. Also, people may not want to live on this earth. They may want to live on in another universe. Um, who knows? <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> when you get up to heaven, it's up to you. We're not going to have these bodies. We don't have holy bodies, I believe. Um, so we can find out when we get to heaven eventually. In fact, <laughs> um, so we'll find out what happens. Uh, the evolution of the uh, the earth about that have been under dinosaurs and rocket ship to heaven. It's quite, quite interesting theories. And I like all these sort of theories. And I love scientific stuff. I like biology, chemistry. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? I've probably got time for maybe one more question. Yeah. That's all right. Half, half form of questions. It won't be the first half-formed thing said this morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, my question, I think, is about um, is about filling the earth and subduing it and all of that. And we've done all sorts of things, good and bad, with that. And the thing that's going around around my head that I can't quite reconcile is uh, one of the things that we've done is create plastic, which goes against the stuff that you were talking about, the, the natural evolutionary resurrection of something which goes into the ground and disintegrates um, and, and into something new. And we've kind of stopped that process by creating a plastic which doesn't do that dan says you can make fleeces out of plastic bottles you can um so we're, so we're now trying to create our own resurrection in that i suppose and I, I wonder i guess my question maybe is what does that say about our our attitude to god and to resurrection and maybe you can make a better question out of this than i can i, th I think it's really interesting that um so much of what we create as human beings is an attempt to thwart nature to a certain degree. Um, I'm interested in architecture. I think it's really interesting that human beings are the only thing in creation that makes stuff with right angles. <laughs> it's like there's no right angles in the whole of nature where everything we want straight, thank you very much. Um, every scrap of ground in nature, uh, life is going to spring up in it with certain exceptions like the desert, often we created those as well. Um, but we want to pave stuff over and kind of control. No, no, this bit, no nature, thank you very much. That's a very foreign idea to, to nature, which is all about that invitation of God to, for life to spring forth. No, do not spring forth, we'll pave that over because we've got a prince coming. Um, <clears throat> it's the same. Uh, um, human beings are the only um, animal to... Um, try and preserve the dead, stuff like the, the pyramids, but even like putting bodies in a box and like, no, no, we, we are 
more important than this. We don't want to just go back to the dirt like everything else does. Um, and yeah, absolutely, things like plastics and so on are part of that. Like we want to create things that are almost in defiance of nature a lot of the time. Um, <coughs> that doesn't generally work out very well for us because we don't win <laughs> in those circumstances. And actually, if we were willing to accept ourselves as part of nature, um, we'd be a lot better off. But there is a spiritual thing there. <coughs> yeah, I, I mean, in the old days, it would have been called sin, actually, um, of, of that form of rebelling against God and refusing to see ourselves as mortal. Interesting idea. Um, okay, one more question. How do we find God in things like plagues, disease, scary monsters lurking at the bottom of the sea? How do we find God there? That's a uh, save an easy one for last. Um, <laughs> <coughs> I think this is the, that process of the world being broken uh, because of this sin issue um, and the, the processes of evolution and change that go through conflict and know, cataclysmic events and disasters and so on, and other processes, processes that are moving forward through love and cooperation, and those plagues and disasters and sea monsters um, are part of that old world which is slowly passing away. How it passes away, um, uh, we're involved in that. You know, there have been plagues that humanity has more or less eliminated things like smallpox or polio, which has been pushed right back to like 99.9% eliminated. So hu human action is, is part of changing those stories. Um, and I think there's a spiritual element of, of victory in that as well. Um, it's still hard to understand disasters as they happen, and it's right to mourn all of those things. But I think, I mean, a human life is so short, isn't it? We get our... 70, 80, 90 years out of a story that runs for billions of years. It's very hard to understand how things might be changing and how things might be different in, fu in future. But if it's anything like the stories that we looked at this morning, what is happening and what is developing and emerging is completely unlike um, what we have now. And again, in that passage in Revelation, God is making his home among us and Story that the passage then says, and I will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will be no more sorrow and mourning and pain. And I think that's what we have to trust, really, is that we can't possibly understand what that means in reality, but we can hold on to it as a promise. <laughs>